Gracious Father, we just again come tonight at the end of this study, and we just again pray. First, we thank you for this uh, word that you've given us over the last many months, and Lord, we just ask you again through your spirit to have the truth of this passage speak to us. And Lord, we acknowledge it's so easy for us to sit in judgment of the Israelites and the Judeans and say, why won't they listen to you? And yet we find ourselves so often being in the same situation. When we think we're doing what's right and yet we've excluded you from the decision process. Help us see that. Help us learn. Help us understand. Help us see the applications to our own lives. And help us also just to understand the history of your people at this critical turning point of your relationship with them at the end of 2 Kings. We pray all this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we are, we are at the end of our study of 1 2 Kings. We're going to start Galatians next week. So in preparation for that, I encourage you to uh, read all of Galatians. It's only six chapters. It won't take you long. We'll be focusing on chapter 1 next week of Galatians. But tonight, we're wrapping up our study in 2 Kings. Um, not a big surprise at how this is all going to end. We've been hearing this foretold, prophesied for, uh, well, literally, since the split of the kingdom. But still, the way it happens is swiftly and, quite frankly, uh, in some ways, a little surprising. Last week, we saw that... Uh, Jehoaz uh, took over from his father, his father, the, uh, the great reformer, and he, he takes over, and we, his father was killed by Egypt, by the king of Egypt, and, and throughout tonight's study, the, the three players of Judah, Egypt, and Babylon are always going to be in view, and this is the kind of the start of um, the interplay and what happens to Judah being between these two powers. I hate to use powers almost speaking of Egypt because Egypt is not much of a power at this point. Um, but it is enough of a power at the end of 23 where um, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, but essentially Necho, uh, takes out Jehoaz as king of Judah and puts in his place Jehoiakim. We're going to have Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. If you remember from, if you were around for the Judah study or Judah, a Jeremiah study, we had to get the, you know, the Chin and the Kim. Uh, basically, they're the same name with that. And, and they're throne names, so they're names given to them for their throne. Often we see that even today. And often they're given to them by the country that's put them in place, and their name always has God in it. So when you wonder why they sound the same, because the foundation of is God something. God is faithful. God is uh, ruling. So, so we have uh, Jehoaz at the end of 23 put in power. He's, Egypt is exacting uh, a very high tax from him or a tribute he is then taxing the people quite strongly to raise that money 
not uncommon, and he's paying it in silver and gold to Pharaoh. And we see that in 2335. And so he does that, but then he um, is taken out, or his father or his brother's taken out, he's put in, in power. And he reigns, as we're going to see, we're going to start in chapter 23, verse 36. He reigns um, for 11 years, but it's not without its excitement, as we'll look at in a second. So, starting out with chapter 23, verse 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Pedaiah of Rumah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. 2 Kings 24. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight. For the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Okay, so this is really the first chapter where Babylon actually shows up. And in, in the swiftness to which Babylon shows up is in some ways surprising, but in other ways not. Because essentially what happens is Assyria has this empire. And Babylon, in taking Assyria, just essentially takes over their empire. They, they were always a part of the empire. They were always, as we've talked about before, an irritant inside the empire. So they weren't some foreign entity over here coming and trying to take over. Sometimes that is a more progressive process. There's something from within the empire that eventually ticked away until a weak enough Assyrian king came where they were able to take over the empire. So in a very short period of time, they go from this insurgent over here to literally being the threat um, that Assyria was to Judah. The in-between period of time is where Egypt tries to re-exert itself from a regional standpoint, okay? They ne- Egypt never gets to be any kind of uh, global power like Assyria or Babylon, but they, they are effective in the region, and what's right next to them? Judah. So, so we, we have Jehoiakim is put on the throne. He's, he's an Egyptian person, got put on the throne by Egypt. Okay, we saw that in 23. Then in 24, which is at 605 B.C., he switches quickly. Whoop, here comes Nebuchadnezzar. Egypt, or Babylon shows up, and he, oh yeah, no, I can, I can switch. There's no independence, okay, for any period of time. No more than, than part of a year did, did Judah ever have anything that might be called independence. It was just a question of who it was a vassal of between those. 
So he switches uh, to Nebuchadnezzar and to Babylon because they've shown up on the scene. He does that for three years, and then he rebels. And what happens, and this is going to be really, this is an update of our kings, by the way. If you're wondering about the governor at the end, he's not a, gov- he's not a king, so we, I didn't add him. Also, I ended the description of very good versus just good for our two very good kings. So this is the Babylonian uh, empire, okay? I know that the shading is so terrible. On a screen, you can see this, but basically right here, and I point this out, see this slightly darker area if you can? That's the Medes, okay? The Medes at this time are aligned with the Babylonians. Here's Babylon, here's Assyria. They're aligned with them, okay? Kind of going along. But as we're going to see by the end of tonight, they will eventually just be the next people to take over. The Babylonians are really not in power very long. They take over the Assyrians, but they are not in power for, for really even 100 years. Um, so this is the, the Medes right here, just biding their time till they take over this whole thing. And here's Egypt, and here's Judah right here. And what happens after three years is uh, Babylon's coming and they, they are going closer and they decide to attack Egypt and just take over Egypt at that time. And they're defeated, okay? They're defeated. Judah was always a gateway to Egypt. That's all it is for Babylon is just come through here. This, you know, this is the great desert here. They don't worry about it. So their idea, they always wanted to get to this, the, the Nile Delta, which is really could feed you know, half the world at the time. And they get to here, and they, they get defeated. And so they, they withdraw. They don't withdraw wholly from the area, but they withdraw to try and kind of figure out what's going on. And for that little surgeon, and it's not very long, okay, Egypt tries to ally uh, and press north into Judah. And so when it says that Jehoiakim rebelled against, uh, in, in 21.1, or 24.1, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, that's what happens. Egypt, Babylon gets defeated by Egypt, and Egypt pushes north a little. And they're kind of sweeping up, going, hey, we got them on the run, come join us. Stupid decision. So they joined them, but it goes really ugly. We're going to see uh, three levels, two, of deportation, okay? And this is the first level. Even though it doesn't say it here, but this is where Daniel's deported, you know, the prophet Daniel. We're going to have three of our four prophet, major prophets, Daniel, Isaiah, Isaiah's dead at this time, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, are all during this period of time. Daniel's deported in this first time okay so they rebel babylonians always had a progressive view of these things you rebel depending on how badly you rebelled i'm going to come in i'm going to do something to you i'm going to defeat you in some way i'm going to take a few people i'm going to somehow show you i'm in charge and as we're going to see this is going to get progressive every time they rebel and the more the rebellion is attributed to them this was retributed to Egypt, really. And what Babylon does is eventually come and crush Egypt because they see Egypt coming out 
and collecting these smaller countries as part of this rebellion. So really what this is when he says, you know, the Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Moabites, Amorites, these are all countries up here that are already controlled by Babylon. So what Babylon is sending their own people and they're bringing other captured armies with them as they go in and essentially they're to teach Judah a lesson because he stopped paying, Jehoiakim stopped paying tribute, exerted his independence. So he comes down with all these and they basically defeat him, okay? And it is seen totally by the author as a move by God, right? He says, surely this came about Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight. And I find it interesting, for the sins of Manasseh, in all the bad stuff that's gone on in the southern kingdom, we know Ahaz, we remember him, but it's Manasseh, the one that is actually singled out. That's how bad his reign was. They're being punished. And that's all they're being, they're actually being disciplined, okay? This is a very measured thing. Now, if you're, Daniel, and you'd be taken captive, or if you're some of the people that were killed during this, it didn't seem probably very measured. But they left Jehoiakim in place, took a few captives, you know, did a few things, but they basically, um, uh, very minimal slap on the wrist to, to Judah. But what they do is they also drive Egypt back to the boundary, Okay. And it says in there, Egypt never comes out again. That's how that passage ends, right? The king of Egypt is, is never gone out beyond the border there. That's true, but we're going to see them come out again. Not come out, but encourage a little rebellion. So let's uh, move on. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El-Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother, and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord which Solomon king of Israel had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. 
we struggle a little bit here with the exact uh, how this actually works between Jehoiah Kim and Jehoiah Chin. From the standpoint, it seems like Jehoiah Kim, Kim dies and then Nebuchadnezzar comes in and uh, conquers Jerusalem. But we are told by Daniel and Jeremiah that he's alive when the city's taken. So there might have been, even though Jehiah Chin's reign is very short, three months, they might have been a co-regent at that time. But basically, the father set his son up for not a great situation. That The relationship between Jehiah Kim, even though he survived till his death, and Babylon is not good. And then as soon as Jehiah Chin takes over, something happens to cause Nebuchadnezzar to come in and basically besiege. Not to, not to mince words, but there's a difference between besieging and sieging. And we're going to see both. Besieging basically goes, I attack the city, I'm going to conquer the city. Sieging the city is a totally different thing and is way worse. So basically he goes in, conquers the city, and, and he conquers it because Jehoiah Chin basically gives up or surrenders, okay, to the king. Over all this, we, I have to remember that Jeremiah is always in the background advising Jehoiah Chin, but also Zedekiah. And he's been saying all along, Babylon's going to come. They're the agents of God. You're being disciplined. Just take your discipline. Just surrender. Jehoiah Chin does surrender. Okay. So obviously there'd been a bit of a pushback. He surrenders. And this is the second and much more major exile. Okay. They take out basically the, the, the top t- tier Okay, so anybody that had any commander ability, it talks about the chief craftsmen and smiths, um, the mighty men of valor that w- basically would have been military leaders. And, and they take them all, along with uh, Jehoiah Chin, take them into Babylon. So this is the second and, and a larger uh, exile. The first one's quite small. Daniel got taken in this one. This is the second one. Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, goes in this one. As we know, Ezekiel writes a lot from exile, a lot of his prophecies while in exile. He goes in this one, okay? And this is about 597. So first one around 605 when Babylon shows up, okay? Next one, 597. And, and the third one's going to be 586 when the destruction comes. So they take out Jehoiah Kim or Chin, take him in exile, and they put his uncle in place and rename him Zedekiah. Again, by renaming him, it's a kind of a stamp of, I'm over you. I'm going to give you your name, just like your, your parents gave you your name. That's kind of their way of acknowledging you. And we talked about that, uh, especially at Christmas, how uh, by Joseph naming Jesus, he adopted him. They're kind of saying, we're over you, rename Zedekiah, and, and it should go well, right? Come on, Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the absolute worst leader in Jeremiah's idea. I mean, his ability to lead. 
Jeremiah talks about he's wishy-washy, can't figure out what's going on. And if you remember that study, he's the guy that, that Jeremiah keeps going, you know, would you just listen to me? So let's, let's read, starting verse 18, this small little section on Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So Zedekiah it, it, it is getting a lot of voice. He's reigned 11 years, so it's a period of time that he survived. And and he's a weak person, and there are many forces inside uh, Jerusalem at this time. And he is, he is asking for God's help through Jeremiah, yet he won't worship God, won't acknowledge God's sovereignty, won't acknowledge God as really being able to help him, yet he keeps going to him and asking through Jeremiah for help. And Jeremiah keeps talking about how this guy couldn't make a decision to, to save his life. I mean, he's just back and forth, back and forth. And so that's where he is on a couple things. One, who he should trust. He is behind, you know, he's got his Egyptian faction inside his own. And if you remember, Jeremiah, if you're a part of that study, Jeremiah kept talking about false prophets. And the false prophets kept saying, no, 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 go with Egypt. Egypt will be able to defeat Babylon. Back and forth, back and forth. And, and Babylon has this, this defeat up north that distracts them for a year, okay? So remember, there's really one army. We're not to the sophistication of the Roman army where they were all over the place. Really, it's one major army, and they went to wherever they were fighting, okay? That doesn't mean there aren't soldiers, but the main bulk of the army. So they get distracted for a year, and in that year, Egypt, again, is trying to stir up trouble, okay? Remember, these guys are always a border between Egypt and whatever power, Assyria, Babylon, okay? So if I can get you to be the cannon fodder in between and take all the heat, I may survive. So they're, they're rallying these countries. And inside Jerusalem are these false prophets saying, oh, you should go with the Egyptians. You should fight against the Babylonians. And Zedekiah just can't figure out what to do. He's trying to pick the right, should I, should I stay a vassal of Babylon? Should I unite with Egypt? What should I do? And his problem always is what? You cannot get the right answer unless you write, ask the right question. And he kept asking the question, Egypt or Babylon? Egypt or Babylon? Well, there isn't a right answer because neither one are the answer. The only answer is God. And yet Zedekiah refuses. He's asking, this is crazy, if you remember the, the Jeremiah study. He's asking God, should I align with Egypt or should I align with Babylon? And God through Jeremiah is saying, neither, align yourself with me. Yeah, sure, fine, God, okay, good. No, really, should I go left or should I go right? And the mere refusal to acknowledge the critical part of the question, which is God is the only answer. But if we ask the question that excludes God, then God will never be the answer and we will never have the right answer. 
And that has been the problem throughout First and Second Kings, and it is critically right now for Zedekiah. He's listening to people that are speaking into the question as he's framed it, and he's framed it in a way that he cannot have the right answer. So often we ask questions that automatically lead us to the wrong answer. Because the way we ask the question will be the way we receive the answer. And the answer that does not put God first and center is always the wrong question and will always give the wrong answer. And that's Zedekiah's problem. And now it's going to go really bad for Zedekiah. We're going to see in this next passage it's something none of us would ever want to have happen. But it's because he was incapable of hearing God's word, acknowledging God's sovereignty, and asking the right question. Now, we ask ourselves questions every day, multiple times. Do I go here or do I go there? Do I buy this? Do I buy that? Do I talk to this? Do I do that? And so often we construct that in a way that God is not a part of the question. In every question, every action, there is no action that is apart from having, hopefully, God, Jesus Christ, at the center of it. When we look at Zedekiah, Zedekiah has a paragraph. The results of Zedekiah's decision go on for a page almost plus. So often, what Zedekiah was doing when we read Jeremiah, Zedekiah is trying to do the right thing. Well, you can't do the right thing if you don't have the right framework, the right question. So, he rebels. He listens to the false prophets inside his own country. He listens to Egypt, who is not not in any way, shape, or form thinking of what's best for Judah. Not even close. In fact, quite frankly, their interests are diametrically opposed to Judah, yet Judah couldn't see that. It's the same for us. We look at the world and we can't understand that the world's goals are the opposite of our goals if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Yet we align ourselves with the world in ways that causes to be opposed to God. And we don't think of it that way. Zedekiah, now Jeremiah said Zedekiah knew better, but still chose the wrong decision. But we do the same thing. Because the, what, the real, the short, the temporal, the tangible seems so Real. That we have a hard time to see beyond that and seeing the spiritual battle that rages between the world and God. So he rebels, and it's not good. So let's look at chapter 25, starting at verse 1. Second Kings 25. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. 
and they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down, and all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the firepans also and the bowls. What was of gold the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea, and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was eighteen cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A latticework and pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same, with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took Saraiah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war. And five men of the king's council were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. If in 24 that rebellion was met with essentially a, a slap on the wrist or a, 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 an intense warning, this is a severe punishment. Again, what the Babylonians would do is, if you rebelled, they'd send you a signal, don't do that again. If you do it again, they're going to pretty much destroy you. And we're going to see what happens when there is a third attempt at a rebellion. So they come in, essentially destroy the city. But before they destroy it, as we've seen before, they, they siege it which means they basically encircle the city and cut it off from everything. The siege lasts, in this case, 18 months. 
So you know they've, they've besieged your city. They, they've, they've encircled it. You know how much food and water you have, and that's how long you have till you start dying. And so you sit there. You can't do anything. You can't go fight them. You go about day-to-day of survival, but no crops are coming in, no water. And so the famine gets severe. We know from other writings that, that literally people just start dying. And they start dying until basically they have no ability to resist at all. And then they break down the walls and go in and take the city with no resistance. It's a very effective way to do battle because basically you're not putting any of your people at risk. You're just slowly torturing the, the people that are rebelling until the point where you, you start to destroy their only physical defense, which is the wall around the city. They do that. The king, who's a weak king anyway, uh, flees. He flees with his army as soon as they're caught by the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, uh, the army deserts him, leaves, and he is there um, as a captive. They come and, and essentially try him, which isn't too hard to, to figure out how that went. And they sentence him. And basically, uh, they take his sons, not uncommon, they take his sons and kill his sons one by one in front of him and then blind him so that the last thing he ever sees is his sons being killed. And then they put him in, in what would have been bronze uh, chains and take him to captivity. It's repeated over and over as countries are taken. Here, though, the author clearly sees this as the judgment of God. Judgment of God not only on the nation itself, but on this king specifically. And again, he has such short text here in 2 Kings, but in Jeremiah, he takes a prominent role in his uh, approach to the situation, and especially as it respects God. So here's a more massive uh, deportation of the, uh, the uh, Judeans and they're, they're deported, uh, taken out. This, this started about 588, goes for about 18 months, goes into 586. And basically, this is the destruction. Now, it's interesting because in Jeremiah, when we read that, they kept saying, even during the siege, they kept saying, but the temple's here. And as long as the temple's here, the Holy of Holies is here. And thus God is here because God resides in the Holy of Holies. He resides in the temple. We can't be defeated because we have the physical temple. Yet Jeremiah was saying what? No, no, God is withdrawing from you. He's turning his face. Surrender. Surrender and you'll live. Don't sit here through this siege and starve to death. Do you not see all these people dying? This is the hand of God. Will you just finally, for once, submit to God? And they refused. Now, do they acknowledge Jeremiah, who he is? Yes, he's referred to by Zedekiah as the man from God. It isn't like, oh, I didn't know. 
It's just like if we were saying the Bible, nobody in here says, no, the Bible is not the word of God. You wouldn't be here if you didn't believe the Bible is the word of God. Yet we often look at it as they, or Zedekiah looked at Jeremiah. Yes, I know what you're saying is the word of God, but I just can't bring myself, yeah, to do it. So he prays a high price, a high price. And they come in. And that temple they so cherished, held on to, built the foundation of that which they believed was going to save them is destroyed completely. And as is everything else. As we see in, in what the books, the next two books that come are after Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they destroy all that and they tear down the wall. So literally when people walk by, they go, we saw this in Jeremiah, they walk, people walk by and go, wow, these people were really bad because look what happened to their city. And that's true. They were really bad in the eyes of God. So he punishes the king severely, destroys the city, and in the process of destroying the city, he doesn't just take the things out of the temple. He melts them down. That's what he says when they go, they go to Babylon as gold and silver, not as the precious things that Solomon made as part of the temple. They're actually reduced so you can't even tell what they are. It may have been a, a, a gold item, but now it's just a chunk of gold. That is the total wiping out of the temple and the temple worship. Where is the presence of God amongst his people after the temple is destroyed? Where are the ability to worship God? Where is the ability to seek atonement from God? It's all gone. You can't find it. It doesn't exist. It's hunks of gold, silver, and bronze. Now, it's fascinating because after reading this, we could quickly say, wow, it's over. That's it. <laughs> it's done. The president, God is withdrawn. They can't find God. They can't worship God. They can't do anything. It is finally, but not quite. Not quite. So, Nebuchadnezzar still wants to have an entity called Judah. So he's going to put somebody over that. There's nobody left but the poorest of the poor, but he still wants to have an entity called Judah. So he appoints a new governor. So let's go to that in verse 22. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had left, he appointed Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, governor. Now when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah Mizbah, namely Ishmael the son of Nathaniah, and Johanan the son of Kareah, and Saraiah the son of Tanhamath the Nedophathite, and Jaazaniah the son of the Macathite. And Gedaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land, and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But in the seventh month, 
Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mitzbah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So Nebuchadnezzar puts Gedaliah as governor. Notice the difference? He's not king, okay? There's no sovereign entity or even allusion to any kind of sovereign entity that a king might give. He is a governor of Babylon, okay? So he's a Babylonian official, not a vassal king, not somebody that has some power in himself. He's just a civil servant of the Babylonians. He is seen very favorably by Jeremiah and essentially echoes Jeremiah's words throughout. And Gedaliah swore to them, I'm in verse 24, Gedaliah swore to them and their men saying, do not be afraid of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it'll go well with you. Remember what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah says to those going in exile, go into exile. Buy a house. Remember, even Jeremiah buys a house in in Babylon. Buy a house. Plant a vineyard. Settle in. You're going to be there for a while. 70 years. Most of them will die before that, but that's how long the people go there. Be a part because you are under the, the discipline of God. Just go there. Just accept this discipline. To the people that are left, Goliath says, just settle in. Just accept this. This is what God is doing. It'll go well with you if you will just accept the hand of God in your life. And yet they won't do it. It is stunning. It is stunning after all that happened. And there's no external force. There's no Egypt plotting them on. Egypt's gone now. Egypt's been pretty much flattened. And yet these, somebody with royal blood rises up and kills them. The appointed governor. This is the king's governor. This isn't a vassal king. This is the king's governor. He happens to be a Jew, but he's the king's governor. And they kill him. Well, immediately, immediately they realize, wow, that wasn't very smart. And so they, this group of people that are left that that did this, go to Egypt. Now, Jeremiah's been saying, for you in Babylon... Settle in, just live your life. It's going to be all good. For you left here, settle in, it's all going to be good. But they take Jeremiah with them. And he is screaming, don't do this. Don't you go and don't take me with you. I'm to stay here with the people under the discipline of God and do what he tells us to do. And you're taking me to Egypt. So when we look at this, what, what do we have? We have people taken into Babylon. And we have people returning to captivity in Egypt. The exodus is totally undone. The exodus is no more. The people of God have been dispersed and returned. Not because God told them to, but because that's what they chose to do 
Remember in Exodus when they threatened to go back? They finally did it, at least some of them. So they go back, they, they take Jeremiah with them, kicking and screaming, saying, I don't fear Babylon. I don't fear the Chaldeans, even though you just killed their governor. Leave me back here. It's gonna, God has told me it's going to go okay with me. Yet they won't listen to him, and they take him with. And they go to Egypt. And so they're there. There are people left in Judah. Today we'd find it totally unacceptable to see it, the social strata, but that's what's left, the poorest of the poor. And they're left just simply because they don't matter to the Babylonians. The Babylonians are sure they're not going to rise up and rebel. There's no one left to cause the Babylonians any trouble. And in fact, to the extent that Babylon does not technically appoint another Jewish governor, that's why there's nobody mentioned, they basically rule what's left of Judah from another country. It's so insignificant. It's so totally destroyed that the few people left are just an afterthought from another country. And that's what's come of the great nation of Judah. But there's always a remnant, right? Remember, since Adam and Eve, there's never been not a remnant. And Judah was that remnant for a while, right? Judah was the remnant when the northern kingdoms destroyed and basically wiped off the face of the earth by the settlement, double resettlement policies of Assyria. Babylon doesn't have that. They deport, but they don't import people. And that's significant. And so God still has a remnant. The Egyptian remnant, except for Jeremiah, really doesn't matter. But those... And what becomes called the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews, become incredibly important. And in the next book after Chronicles is Ezra, and we're going to see them allowed to come back. And 2 Kings says it one way, and Chronicles says it another way. We're going to look at both. 2 Kings first, let's look at that, starting verse 27, how they paint a hope of a future, and they do it through Jehoiakim. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. So Second Kings does it through Jehoiakim and acknowledging him as king of Judah in exile. So there's still a king. And all of a sudden he started treating better. And that is seen as, as a glimmer of hope for the Jews. Chronicles says it much more directly. And Second Chronicles ends, and, and you know, there's a parallel between Kings and Chronicles. Second Chronicles ends with this paragraph. 
Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah may be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with you. Let him go up. Basically, the the, uh, Medes who had been idling up north here don't idle for long. And the Medes and the Persians unite and take over basically all this area. And their philosophy is totally different. They don't want to have to deal with you exiled people. We want you to go back, but just pay us and don't rebel. That's the only two things they ask. Pay us, don't rebel. You can have your own government. You can basically do what you want to do. And so they allow, 538, people to go back. And that's basically what Ezra and Nehemiah are about, the repopulation It's a small fraction of the people that were deported that actually want to go back. Some people took to heart too much what Jeremiah said and built their lives there, were born there, and said, we don't want any part of Judah. But some do go back. They rebuild the temple, which is rededicated in 516. And then Jeremiah, they go back and rebuild the walls. Now, the temple is a alluded to at time as what we'd call lean-to. Gone is the glory of Solomon's temple. But they do really build a temple, and they do start to um, create a life in Judah. Another thing happens during this period of time in the exile, a thing called the synagogue. They go in exile, and they still want to worship the Lord, but they don't have any temple. They don't have any place to worship. So they basically invent what we call, or what the Bible calls, the synagogue. The synagogue, you can't, you can't worship, I mean, you can't uh, have any sacrifices, you have no altar, you can't do that. But you can gather and read scripture and hear teaching. And that becomes a significant item for what becomes Christianity. Because first Christians outside of the disciples in the original group that gathered around Jesus, way beyond the 12, 124, we think, are these God-fearers out of the temple coming out and becoming Christians. And, and these God-fearers are people that were drawn to Judaism because they, they liked the idea of one God. They liked the idea of the moral teachings But they were God-fearers, not proselytes, because they never got circumcised. And these God-fearers, who are a a product of the Gentile world in which the Jews were dispersed, being drawn to the synagogue, but seeing something that they can have what they found attractive without having to be circumcised, they are what becomes the church. But they started out with Jewish teaching. And the reason I point that out is next week when we get to Gentiles, we're going to run smack dab into that conflict of having a Jewish background in a Christian church. All right, 
grab a Bible, go to your discussion group. If for chance you're not in a discussion group, come see me.